So good to have each of you here today, worshiping the Lord together. We're talking today about peace. Jesus, one of his titles is Prince of Peace. And I wanted to start off by sharing some headlines I pulled from this week, this very week. Uh, first one is here from Idaho State. You might have followed this story in the news. Idaho, Idaho State Police adds patrols to university campus as school holds vigil for four students killed in unsolved stabbings. Or how about this one? Explosion at Ukraine Embassy in Madrid injures one person, officials say. Or on the financial front, Russian oil sanctions are about to kick in and they could disrupt markets in a big way. Or this one, catfishing cop pretended to be 17, groomed a California girl before killing her family and then himself. You know, I could preach this sermon any week of the year, and I could go online and pull up headlines for that week, and I could find stories just like this. We live in a world that has serious problems. We live in a world where uh, there's a lot of wickedness, and there's a lot of evil, and there are a lot of forces at work to bring about destruction and death. How do we solve these problems? How do we establish real peace? How do we end things like tyranny? How do we restore human dignity? Did you know that God has provided the answer to all of these problems of the world, even the worst of them? Did you know he even invites us to be a part of the implementation of his solution? We're talking about peace. I've titled today's message, Solving the World's Problems, and we're in Isaiah chapter 42. We'll look at the first nine verses. Uh, Isaiah 42, uh, the first nine verses, is one of these, what, what they call servant songs in Isaiah. Uh, there's one also in chapter 41, the chapter immediately preceding this one. And uh, I do believe that the second half of the book Isaiah, starting from uh, chapter 41 or 40, uh, was probably written after the exile uh, by, by maybe a disciple of Isaiah's uh, after him. But the message goes along with what Isaiah had been saying before the fall of Jerusalem. After uh, the fall of Jerusalem, there's, there are words of comfort and encouragement. So in chapter 41, there's a servant song where uh, God talks about Israel, his servant. The whole nation, the whole people of Israel as is his servant. And he rehearses with them his history with them. How he called them and chose them for himself. And he reminds Israel of Abraham. And how that was the initiation of his grand plan to bring blessing through the descendants and through the descendant of Abraham to all the families, all the nations of the earth. And God is saying in that servant song in chapter 41 that uh, he, the exile is not spelling the end of that plan, that God is going to restore Israel from exile and he's going to fulfill this plan of bringing blessing through Israel to all the families of the earth. And then he, he talks about uh, idols 
these man-invented religious structures and things that we come up with to uh, do our own version of things as opposed to listening to God but making up our own gods and he talks about idols and mocks them and uh, talks about how idols have no power and in contrast God talks about himself and says you know Israel I told you that because you had turned away from me to idols that uh, a nation from the north was going to come in and that uh, you were going to be conquered and that Jerusalem would be destroyed and my temple would be destroyed and you would be carried off into exile and guess what Everything happened exactly as I said. You know what the prophets of the Baals were saying? That nothing bad is going to happen. You know why they couldn't do, they couldn't help Israel? Because they, their gods had no power. They had no knowledge. They had nothing to share. And God says, contrast that with myself. I told you exactly what was going to happen. So if I tell you I'm restoring you from this exile, you can know that I'm going to do that as well. That's the background to where we pick it up with another servant song. So we're in chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. God uh, opens this oracle in Isaiah with the word behold. That's the kind of word you say when you want to catch people's attention, right? Look, pay attention, don't miss this. It's kind of a grand ta-da on God's part. Look, what does he want us to look at? He says, look, my servant. And already we can tell that this whole uh, servant song is going to turn things upside down for us because you d wouldn't expect God Almighty to say, here, everybody, pay attention. Let me tell you some grand thing I'm about to do. Look at my servant. We expect for God to point us to a king, to a lion of Judah, to a conqueror, to somebody on a white horse. Instead, he points us to somebody holding a washcloth. Behold, my servant. This is the way God is going to do what he's going to do. And he talks about this servant. I uphold him. He is my chosen one. The one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit on him. He is the way I am going to bring justice to all the nations. God uh, is talking here, I believe, uh, about a couple of things. And we might wonder, who is this servant? Well, Matthew quotes the first four verses of this chapter and directly applies them to Jesus. So Matthew tells us that the servant is Jesus who in his ministry established and began to do what God is promising to do right here. Uh, historically, Jewish people have often interpreted this kind of carrying forward from what is said in chapter 41 and said, no, the servant is Israel, the people of Israel. Uh, I would suggest that perhaps it's a little bit of both. Uh, because Jesus, the Messiah, is the way in which God is going to bring justice to the nations, the way he's going to bring to right what is wrong in the world, but also 
God is going to use his people to further that work and to be participants with him in that work. That is why we Christians uh, have no problem saying Jesus is the light of the world. And in the next breath saying, we who believe in him are the light of the world. And we say that because Jesus told us that. He said, you are the light of the world. You should be like a, a city on a hill that the whole world can be illuminated by because uh, we are participants in what God is up to in Jesus. Now, I will make a very clear point, though. It's not that these are two ways in which God is changing the world. Jesus is the only one who can do this. This servant of God, uh, who God delights in him. And it's no coincidence that multiple times in Jesus' ministry here on earth, there were moments where God the Father from heaven above spoke clearly and said, this is my beloved son in whom I delight. I think there's a very clear connection between this prophecy and the things that God did with Jesus uh, here on earth. So Jesus is the way in which God is transforming the world, but we too who believe in him become participants in that work. And ours is a, this servant could apply to us only in a derivative sense. We're not changing the world, but we have been commissioned by Christ to participate with him in the work of changing the world. And in that sense, it's about both. It's about Jesus and secondarily about us. God calls on the world to behold the glory of his servant who will fix what is wrong with nations on earth. How is God's approach to solving our problems different from our approaches? Let's keep reading verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. You might wonder, how is God going to change the world? How is he going to fix all the evils and bring justice to the nations by using a servant? Doesn't he need a warrior? Doesn't he need a conquering king who can mobilize the armies necessary to effect real change in the world? Isn't that historically the way the world has been changed? By the powerful? And God explains how his servant is going to go about changing the world. First of all, he's not going to use the megaphone. He's not going to be a loud, arrogant voice on the earth. There's a prophecy in Daniel that talks, uses the image of horns on a beast and a little horn that, that boasts great things against God and against all power and authority. And it represents a human king who is arrogant. Jesus is the exact opposite of that. The servant of God is the exact opposite of that. He's not the loud, obnoxious uh, voice. He's this gentle voice that speaks quietly. How to paint an image of how he's going to work? Well, imagine a reed. 
If you've seen reeds over there, they normally grow beside river, rivers and streams. And a reed is a very weak thing. It's, it's a hollow uh, plant. And if, if you knock it as you're walking by, you just knock it and bruise it. What would it take to get that thing to just break? Just puff on it. Do that. It's over. It, it's, it, you snap it. It takes nothing to break a bruised reed. This servant of God is going to work so gently that he will not even break a bruised reed. Another image. Imagine a faintly burning wick. You've got your oil lamp. The oil is running out. The wick is, is dying out. You've barely got an ember left. All it takes is a, a little puff and you've eliminated the fire. This servant will not even quench that faintly burning wick. Now the way every society on earth describes our history and even the most enlightened do it the same. When we write our history books, and you can go to any language, any culture, any, uh, anywhere on earth and read the history books, and you want to see uh, who are the important people on earth, it's not the servants. We don't read stories about people cleaning houses. We don't read stories about people taking care of children. We read stories about kings and warriors and diplomats and politicians and aristocrats and powerful people who exercise authority over others and impose their will on masses of other people. And we think that is how the world is run. When we implement change top down like that, who are the ones who take the worst brunt of the change? Isn't it the weakest? Isn't it those bruised reeds, those faintly burning wicks at the very bottom who have no, nobody to defend them, who have no power, who have no way to help themselves? Those are the first to get trampled underfoot as we go about doing the grand things we do as humans. This servant of Yahweh is going to do it the other way around. He's going to protect the weakest. He's going to do things in such a way that he does not trample the, the most bruised and fragile among us. And yet, by not yelling, by refusing to use violence as his method, he is going to faithfully bring forth justice. God's solution to the world's evils is brought in the most gentle of ways. How gentle are you when dealing with the evils around you? Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. You might think, well, if this is God's plan, he's going to bring up a servant who's so, uh, such a pansy. He, he won't even uh, hurt the weakest among us. He's never going to get anything done. 
And he's going to be fodder for the powerful on earth. And he's quickly going to be trampled underfoot. He's going to be like those faintly burning wicks. And like that bruised reed. How can he ever accomplish anything in this world? It's too hard. The world is too full of tyrants and wickedness and powerful forces at work. How can this servant accomplish anything? We might think if he's so gentle and so kind, he could never accomplish it. And yet God says, no, he's not like that faintly burning wick. He's not like that bruised reed. He is not going to grow faint. He is not going to be discouraged. And he is going to keep on doing what he's doing until his justice has overwhelmed the earth. The coastlands are going to wait for his law. The most distant lands of the earth are going to wait for the arrival of his work. This servant is going to absolutely be victorious and he's going to do it the way God is saying he's going to do it. Unlike the fragile persons he protects, God's servant will not be extinguished. He will not grow weak. How well have you done in persevering for the good of the world? Verse 5. Thus says God, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. You might say, that's impossible. You can't change the world with a servant who cares for the weakest That'll never work. The only time anybody changes anything is military might and imposition of force. That's the only way we ever do anything. God reminds us who it is that's making this promise. This is what Yahweh says. That name alone, Yahweh, I am that was God's grand declaration when Moses said, uh, when God was calling Moses to go get Israel out of slavery in Egypt, Moses said, who am I supposed to tell the Israelites sent me to bring them out? And God didn't say, tell them the God of the mountain sent you. Tell them the God of the, the ocean sent you. The God of the skies sent you. No, he says, tell them I am sent you. And when God says that as the way to define himself, I am, he is saying something nothing else in all creation can say when they say I am. I can say I am, but there's always a question mark after it, right? I am right now. If you drop a piano on me, I can no longer say I am. I'm gone. I am here so long as my life is sustained. So long as by the will of God I have the breath of life in me and my heart continues to beat, I am. But the minute any number of things happens, I am no longer. There is not a being in creation that can say I am the way God says it. When God says I am, he is the only one who can say I am, period. He is the only non-contingent being that exists. Everything else depends on him for its existence. 
So let's remember who it is that is making the promise. The great I am, the only one who exists in and of himself and does not depend on any other power to sustain his existence. The one who created the heavens and stretched them out like you would stretch out a roll of paper. The one who spread out the whole earth and what comes from it, who filled the earth with plants that produce grain and fruit and nuts and all these things that sustain life and then filled it with people and he put the breath of life in them. The great God who created everything and sustains its existence is the one who is saying, I am going to use a servant to fix what is broken. He's credentialing the promise because it sounds ludicrous. It sounds impossible. But remember who it is that's making the promise. God reminds us that he is the omnipotent creator and sustainer of everything that exists. How does knowing this help us embrace his plan to change the world through suffering service? Let's keep reading verse 6. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and the, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So, God makes the promise. He's going to use his servant. The servant is going to do this in the most gentle possible of ways. How exactly is this going to happen? How do you change the world with a servant? Now you might think the way you change the world is you bring in somebody who can get rid of all the wicked people. All those uh, who are in positions of tremendous power and wield it to the detriment of the whole world and who are constantly warring and warmongering and, and doing all these things. If God would just kill them all, then the problem would be solved. If we got rid of all the tyrants and all the wicked people who exercise power in the world right now, then the problem would be solved. No, it wouldn't. Because the problem of evil is not out there. The problem of evil is in here. You see, we're all participants in evil. We all do the wrong thing. Not just once in a while, but continually. Daily. We do a whole array of things we should not do. We deprive the world of kindness and goodness that we should have been extending and we hold it back and daily we are greedy and selfish and self-centered and in so many ways we are part of the problem. And if God were to fix the problem of evil by getting rid of evil people, there would be no people left. We're all part of the problem. So how can God's servant fix this problem? There's only one way. Redemption. To take the wicked and change them. God says that he has called his servant in righteousness. Paul tells us in Romans that the gospel, the message of Jesus, is the way in which the righteousness of God is being revealed in our lives. 
God is restoring rightness to us in Jesus. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I give you as a covenant for the people. How is God going to fix the world? He's going to invite the wicked people of the world to enter into covenant with him. And Jesus, his servant, is the way in which that covenant is going to be made possible. A light for the nations. What's Jesus going to do to those who come and enter into covenant with God through him? He will open eyes that are blind. So many times, the, the big part of the problem is that we all think we're right. Tyrants think they're right. They are so deceived that they think what they are doing is the right course of action. Nobody is the villain in their own mind of the story of their life. We're blind. We can't even see that we're the problem. We can't even see that we are uh, chained and bound by the sin that is so prevalent throughout our lives. Those who enter into this covenant will have their eyes opened and they will see what they could not see before. They'll be brought out of prison. The Bible tells us that those who do sin are slaves of sin. Sin is described in the Bible as bondage. It puts you in prison. It, by, by leading you and guiding you into the wrong, it, it builds prison bars around you and traps you in these patterns of destructive living that you cannot f- seem to find the way to break out of. The servant will break us free from those dungeons. These prisons that have us sitting in darkness, in hopeless darkness. He will bring us out to the light of day. God's servant will make things right. Not by crushing the wicked, but by changing them. How has Jesus changed you? Let's finish the last two verses. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God is talking uh, about uh, how what he's telling us he's going to do is absolutely irrevocable. There's no turning it back. First, he reminds us how different he is from the gods we make up, the idols we build and the statues and the little shrines we erect and all this, and it's all a big joke. The gods we invent have no power. They can do nothing. God is nothing like that. We should never equate him in any way to any of that. There is no one like him. God reminds us, the former things have come to pass. As Deutero-Isaiah writes, everything God said through the prophets leading up to Isaiah himself has already happened. The nations did come down from the north, even though all the false prophets were lying and saying, no, Jerusalem is never going to fall. The prophets of God were saying, yes, it is. 
And it happened exactly, and God spelled it out. It's going to be Babylon, and they're going to come in, and they're going to tear down the city, and they're going to destroy the temple, and they're going to kill many of you, and they're going to carry you off into exile. And they gave very great detail about what to expect. And God says, everything I said has come to pass, exactly as I said it. And as this uh, prophet of God writes, uh, as the exile has just begun, he says, I'm declaring new things to you. This is being written about 600 years before Jesus was ever born. God says, just as I was faithful to do everything I told you was going to happen before, and it happened just the way I told you it was going to happen, you can count on the fact that what I am telling you is also going to happen, even though it has not happened yet. My servant is going to come, and he is going to do what I say he's going to do. I tell you now, before it even happens, before they spring forth, I tell you of these events. And so it is, a good 600 years before Jesus was born, God was saying, I'm sending this person. Now we have the fortune of living 2,000 years after the fulfillment of this prophecy. God did send his servant. And he entered the world. And he didn't raise armies. He didn't play the political game. He didn't do any of the things we would think you would have to do to change the world. And yet, the world today is incredibly different than it was 2,000 years ago. Ponder that for a moment. I know we're so proud. We think it's that we've become better people. And we've figured it all out. And it's because of human progress that now things like slavery are abolished most places in the world today. And women are allowed to vote in a lot of places and, and are treated as equal to men in many places. And there are all these kindnesses and good things happening the world over. You think that just happened? God has been for 2,000 years transforming hearts. And when enough hearts get transformed, society changes. For 2,000 years, this servant has been meekly, gently calling the wicked to redemption. And the result we can see 2,000 years later is that we live in a world that our ancestors 2,000 years ago could never have dreamed the comfort, the safety, the ease in which you and I live every day and take for granted has something in the history of the world nobody has enjoyed. People live for fear of their lives. You think it's bad today? For 2,000 years, Jesus has been working. We are invited to join him in this work, to surrender our lives to him so that we become part of the solution, not part of the problem. God has decreed restoration for the world through his suffering servant, Jesus. How have you seen Jesus change the world? How have you seen him change your heart? God sees our world. He sees the abuses, the atrocities, the fighting. And God is moved to compassion. He wants peace for all of us.
He wants to protect the weakest among us. <clears throat> and he has provided the solution. The servant king has come, Jesus Christ, to bring just decrees to the nations, to change the hearts of legislators and judges and politicians and voters and citizens the world over. Jesus has been officially commissioned to mediate a covenant for all the nations of the earth and the end result of which is a transformed understanding as radical as moving from blindness to sight, from residing in a prison dungeon to freedom. We're called to join this servant king in this task of reconciliation. How do we solve the world's most difficult problems? We solve them by surrendering to this servant king and joining him in the task of introducing his invitation to every tribe, every people, every language, every nation. We call them to Jesus. Please be reconciled to God and in him to the rest of the world. He has the power to radically transform even the blackest heart. We're going to have a time of invitation, a time to respond to the Word of God today. I don't know what God may have been laying in your heart. First of all, if you don't know Jesus as your Redeemer, as the one you have surrendered your heart and life to, to fix and restore and remake you from the inside out, if you have not begun that process yet, let me invite you to start with that today. Maybe you already know Jesus and you've been reminded of the work He's calling you to in Him. And you need to make some kind of commitment. This is your time to respond to his word in whatever way he's laid on your heart. Let's all stand. And those who are going to help me with the invitation, if you'll come forward now and stand here at the front. These people are here. If God's put something on your heart, come here. Take their hand and just share with them what God's put in your heart. Let them pray with you and pray for you. Maybe you just need to come and kneel at the altar here. We'll leave the altar open. Come and pray. Uh, whatever it is God's put on your heart, this is your time to respond. Come while we sing. <laughs>